Welcome to Hot Politics. My name is David Mackay. I'm Deputy Managing Editor of Canada's National Observer, and I must admit, a bit of a political junkie. In Hot Politics, I examine who has the best ideas on important issues, especially the climate crisis. Hot Politics is made possible by listeners like you. We're asking for your support to keep the work going. Five or ten dollars as a one-time contribution or monthly gift, every little bit helps us keep producing more episodes. Please donate at nationalobserver.com. The world has made promises to significantly reduce the damage being done to the environment by 2030 or 2050, depending on the industry. The only way to reach this goal is to reduce or stop relying on fossil fuels. And that means changing the way we heat our homes, how we power our computers, the products we buy, and how we move around, especially in vehicles. A big part of the solutions is harnessing nature to produce solar, wind, and power, and powering vehicles with electric batteries. Metals are the lifeblood for solar, wind, and electric batteries. And perhaps that's one of the reasons why metals are called critical minerals. Institutions such as the World Bank and the International Energy Agency are studying future demand for these critical minerals needed for most of us to pivot to clean energy technologies. The first big number, demand for minerals such as graphite, lithium, and cobalt will increase 500% by 2050. 500%. Take a moment to let that number sink in. That's more than 3 billion tons of minerals for wind, solar, and geothermal power, as well as energy storage. Right now, those minerals come from mining on land. But mining creates big problems for the environment. Deforestation, erosion, and contamination of waterways. The International Energy Agency says many of the metals needed are found in only a few countries. There's another form of mining that's being described by advocates as the solution to land mining, and by critics as the new strip mining. It's mining the bottom of the ocean, a process some experts actually equate to exploring another universe like space. The traditional approach to deep-sea mining is to have a machine move along the bottom, sucking up everything in its path. This process creates a major disturbance to the seafloor, kicking up sediment and gathering much more than the actual metals being mined. And this is done more than six kilometers, or four miles, below the surface, where there is no sunlight, and many people think not much life to disturb. Like I said a bit earlier, another universe. Biologists, ocean experts, and environmentalists respond to that assurance with, well, we don't know what we don't know. They say there should be no mining until we do know the risk to the ecosystem. Today's episode of Hot Politics will look at the environmental questions and talk with two companies that believe seabed mining can be done safely. And get this, with robots. Episode 11, The Next Frontier or The Next Disaster. First, the company Impossible Mining 
and Ken Nielsen. Ken Nielsen is an environmental biologist and professor emeritus at Earth Sciences and Biological Sciences at the University of California in Pasadena and at the Scripps Institution of Oceanography in San Diego. He has also worked at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California, developing methods to detect life on Mars. But these days, his attention is not above the Earth, but below the water. He's founder of Impossible Mining, a Canadian company that hopes to begin mining the seabed within two years. The company says it can safely gather the rocks or nodules that are full of minerals needed for the transition to renewable energy. Ken Nielsen, welcome to Hot Politics. Now, yeah, thank you very much. Can you explain deep sea bed mining? What we're really talking about here is a part of the ocean that's uh, miles deep. No place on the planet that's as deep as the bottom of the uh, really deep oceans. Uh, we're talking four to five miles uh, in depth. And when it says the seabed mining, it means taking what's at the surface of, of the bottom of the ocean on what are literally thousands of square miles on the, on the deep ocean. It's a challenging place because of the pressure and the depth at which you have to, if you want to have a, a tethered machine, uh, you're going to have to have four miles of cable on the, on the tether. And if you're going to try to bring stuff up from there, you're going to have to have something that uh, can transport it through four miles of water. The real target of this are the polymetallic nodules that are abundant throughout large areas of the deep sea. The good thing about that is they're sitting on the surface. The bad thing is they're still four miles away, and it's not easy to figure out how to do it. So how do you plan to get these metal-filled modules out of the water without causing environmental harm? How, how would your machine operate in a more environmentally friendly way? What we are developing, and it's being uh, developed right, right up near you in Toronto, are the robots that will go down and hover above the bottom of the ocean. So they're neutrally buoyant when they get down to the seabed. And they have the intelligent collecting arms. And the number of arms per robot, I think, is probably 36. They're totally uh, autonomous vehicles. They're smart vehicles that will go down, pick up hundreds of nodules, and when they've got a full load, they come back to the ship and dump the load. Everything works fine. They, the arms have their own uh, visual system. They know how to recognize a nodule. They know how to distinguish an, a nodule from one that has some organism sitting or growing on it. And they just pick it up without disturbing the set. I know you believe in the, the legitimacy, but is there no collateral damage at all? You know, that's the hope. You can't really prove that there's no collateral damage until you get the thing down there. The issue now becomes... How important is that environment to you and how sensitive it is, is it to running a disruption through? And uh, I'm sorry, but we don't know that yet. So I think the proper approach would be to do something that has minimal impact on the environment. I'd like to say zero, but I don't know that will be true. 
And one of the reasons I jumped on the train is that I really believe we can use biological methods to extract the trace metals and produce no toxic waste during that process. 30 years ago, we isolated bacteria uh, that instead of respiring oxygen, will respire metal oxides. So I know it sounds like science fiction, but uh, if you take a chunk of manganese oxide and seed it with my bacteria and take away the oxygen, they'll continue respiring, which means giving their electrons to some electron acceptor. And when they reduce the manganese oxides with their electrons, the crystalline form disappears, the manganese becomes soluble, and the trace metals go in the solution. When this was uh, first isolated, it, it was like uh, magic, you know, and people, no one really wanted to believe it. I'm just going to stop you right there. Help me understand. What's this connection? This is, this is a technical explanation, but what's this connection with the deep sea mining? The polymetallic nodules will be brought up to the surface. They'll be transported to some mining place. And what we're developing are the methods whereby we can use our, the, our bacterial method to just totally dissolve the nodules, freeing all the trace metals in the solution, and then separating them from the manganese and iron. I, I don't think anybody is really challenging us on this process except whether it can be scaled up to the two and several tons a day. So if there is a way to bring these nodules up without destroying the deep sea environment, I think my contribution, my group's contribution, will be a very nice day because we'll be able to mine to extract these metals, to do things in ways that nobody's done before. And, and then finally, the promise, right? So there's a lot of promise here seabed mining won't be like land mining because the nodules are so rich in, in metals that mining the ocean bed will not go on for a long time. So I'm wondering how realistic that promise is. I certainly wouldn't make a, pro a promise like that. Uh, I think right now, every step that we take in the electrifying world requires new sources of trace metals, and new sources of all of these things to make batteries. In another 20 years, it may well be that the major source of all these trace metals and batteries are coming from recycling. That's something that nobody's really put much thought into, I think. Right now, we're trying to develop bacterial methods for processing so-called black mass uh, and stuff from torn up batteries. And they're again loaded with these trace metals. When that reaches the hundreds of tons or thousands of tons level, which you will if these things keep going like they're going, that's something that we ought to consider. If that were the case, and you really focused on recycling, then there would reach a point where you don't really need a whole big input for things. And that's something we ought to be thinking about. Well, there is a lot to think about. You certainly give us given us a lot to think about during this rather fascinating conversation. Uh, Ken Nielsen, thank you very much for this. Appreciate it. Uh, this was fun. Thank you. While Impossible Mining is testing its robots 
a Vancouver-based company called The Metals Company, has already been out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean doing exploratory work with its robotic equipment. For three months in late 2022, a retrofitted oil drilling ship extracted 3,600 rocks loaded with manganese, nickel, and cobalt. The machine sucks up the rocks, known as polymetallic nodules, just like a vacuum cleaner, and feeds them through a series of pipes up to the ship. It was a $250 million expedition designed to prove that mining can be done with minimal damage to the ecosystem. Gerard Barron is the CEO of the Metals Company. Gerard Barron, welcome to Hot Politics. David, it's a pleasure to join you today. What is deep seabed mining? The oceans have three types of metals in them, and um, polymetallic nodules, which the Metals Company are entirely focused on, and, and nodules are... Think of them as potato-sized little rocks that literally lie in certain parts of the ocean floor. Polymetallic nodules form and sit in the abyssal zone, and it's an area, it's the most common area of our planet, on our planet. Um, there is no flora, no plants there at all, and most of the life, like more than 80% of it, is bacteria living in the sediment. When you say in this zone there are no plants, mainly bacteria, what does that mean? Is it is it like a, a void? It is like a, a moonscape, you could say. There is literally no flora at all. And the reason for that is, firstly, it's around 4,000 meters below sea level, and there's not much food down there. All the food that arrives there comes down through the water column, and most of it is eaten along the way. Now, it doesn't mean there's no life down there, and part of our mission over the last decade has been to better understand exactly what is there and what the impact of us removing these rocks will be. Mm -hmm. And if we, if we use biomass as a metric, there's around 10 grams of biomass, meaning life, per square meter. That's very minimal. M minimal according to whom? Minimal compared to the alternative of where we're carrying out extractive industries today. You know, 10 grams as a measurement. If you go and look at where we're extracting uh, all of our growth in nickel from, we're taking it out of our very biodiverse habitats, rainforests primarily, or underneath rainforests, where if you measure biomass in that environment, you're talking around 30 kilograms of biomass per square meter, you know. I met you in a coffee shop and you said, give me the 20-second elevator pitch. Well, I would say, surely it makes sense to be carrying out extractive industries in parts of the planet where there is the least life, not the most life. Does that become the pitch in a sense? You know, you talk about deep sea mining, companies like yours. This could be a solution to a growing demand for electric batteries, for all aspects of moving to renewables. So... You're describing your mining in the way that it's conducted. Does this become a solution that is friendly to the environment? I think it is by far, by our assessment, the best solution. We carried out this very extensive study and we laid it out for everyone to see about five years ago. And that was assuming that we're going to decarbonize, then the world is going to need a lot more metals. 
So the first question was, where can we get them with the lightest planetary and human touch? And the second part of our mission was to make sure that every single atom we mine, every single metal we mine, goes into the system and stays in the system so it can be recycled in the future. Uh, because we are absolutely driven by circularity. We believe that extractive industries will slow down in the future as recycling meets some of the needs going forward. But there's just not enough metals in the system to meet that demand now. And then the third step in our mission was when we do stop extracting these metals from the ocean, that we can dedicate our onshore processing plants to recycling all sorts of metals. This circularity, what, is, what does it mean? Think of it as closed loop. It really means that we can use what's already in the system. So it means bringing to an end extractive industries. It means being able to live with what we have. And it's where we need to get to because we need to stop taking things from planet Earth because it has an impact. And even collecting polymetallic nodules has an impact. Our argument is that the impact is a fraction compared to the alternatives. And of course, we measure that through a very, very complex lens. We, we measure impact on CO2 emissions. We measure it through impact on sequestered carbon, on impact on biodiversity, impact on human lives, freshwater systems. But on every single measure, and this is not just our work, but this is independent research, we can compress those impacts by up to 100% compared to the land-based alternative. Some environmentalists would compare seabed mining to strip mining on land. And, and you've explained to us that that's really not an analogy, but they are still concerned that the seabed will be dredged, taking everything out during the harvesting, leaving a barren seafloor. How do you plan to get these metal-filled nodules, if I'm describing them correctly, out yes. of the water without environmental harm? Never do we say there's zero harm, but what we are arguing is that the impacts we are a fraction compared to the alternatives. But but how we get them off the seafloor, it's very fortunate, firstly, that they lie on top of the seafloor. So we don't have to dig or tunnel or blast to get to them. And we can see them. And so as our robots crawl along the seafloor, we use an engineering principle known as the Kalonda effect. And what the Kalonda effect does is it sprays a jet of water at the nodule horizontally, and as it hits the nodule, the collector head deviates upwards and it lifts the nodule without having to churn the seafloor. And so, you know, there is technology that will available now, and that technology will continue to improve, which will, I believe, massively continue to reduce the, the impacts of collecting these rocks. But to compare it to strip mining, um, Firstly, as I said earlier, 80% of the life down there is bacteria living in the sediment. And so, you know, we won't destroy that bacteria. We'll mix it up. And in fact, what you do find in King is that as soon as we have harvested nodules from a particular area, that you see an abundance of, of uh, macro and megafauna come in for And when I say abundance, you know, I'm talking, you know, 
single digits because it's not as though a swarm of worms come, but you'll see organisms move to areas that have been disturbed because it's more food. It's like, ah, there's a bit of activity. Let's see if there's some food over yonder where we see some disturbance. And so, um, and of course, we don't impact organisms that can move. There aren't many fish down there, but obviously fish will move away. <laughs> That's one of the advantages. You know, we're, we're collecting these rocks with the lightest touch possible. And of course, it begins with the fact, you know, that this area is low in biomass. The fact that there are no plants there, it would be like going to the Atacama Desert to pick up rocks. You know, that's that's. It doesn't mean there's no life there. It just means that there's a whole lot less life there than the alternatives. So these nodules are basically just big rocks. I often describe them as golf balls lying on a driving range, and our job is to collect them. Where are you testing this equipment? For four months, we had our first production system on the water, on our license area, doing end-to-end -end trials. And it was a, an amazing um, success. We were able to harvest um, our nodules at production levels. We had a second vessel out there that was filled with scientists that were monitoring our activities, uh, both before we started harvesting, whilst we were, and then they stayed behind to survey the area after we'd left to see what impacts had been had. You know, while we were in the process of harvesting nodules, you know, we had like 50 devices in the water, ranging from automated underwater vehicles, they're like robots that are shape of a torpedo, to remote operated vehicles, to listing devices, measuring the sediment that was kicked up. So it was a very complex and a very extensive environmental study of those impacts. And you know what I'm pleased to say? that it was a success on all fronts. Okay, the tests have gone well. Mm -hmm. Now what? We have this enormous amount of ocean science that we had been gathering for the last 10 years, uh, baseline data, because we've had, um, we've been monitoring this part of the seafloor uh, for years so we can establish a baseline so we can see how things change and we can see what changes when we start harvesting nodules. So now the job is to synthesize all of that into our environmental impact um, assessment that we can then present to the regulator, to the International Seabed Authority. And we're hoping to be in a position to do that before the end of this year. Wow, that's pretty quick. So how soon could we see this technology in action? Well, the good news for us is that that vessel, the hidden gem that we were out there last year trialing, is also our first production vessel. And so we hope to receive the permit to move ahead and to be in production by the end of next year, by the end of 2024. You know, the market for this, I guess, is, is huge, right? Moving away from fossil fuels means more batteries, it means electric vehicles, it means wind turbines, it means solar panels, it means storage at your house, it means heavy transportation moving to batteries. And so when you add up all of these demand drivers, we have a massive shortage that we're looking down the barrel of. And if we want to move away from fossil fuels, if we want to address 
global warming, then we have to make these steps. We don't have the luxury of sitting around and waiting for something to drop out of the sky. How important will regulation be in keeping an eye on, on rogue companies, uh, making sure that everyone's doing things the way they're supposed to do and not turning this into a wild, wild west? Well, regulations are vitally important. 50 years ago, they started to collect these very same nodules. And there were some of the world's leading corporations involved, uh, Mitsubishi, uh, Sumitomo from Japan, uh, Lockheed Martin, BP and Shell were involved. But the United Nations stepped in and stopped them because the world had not agreed who owned the oceans. And so finally in 1982, UNCLOS, which stands for the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, was agreed. And that basically defined where your boundaries begin and end as a sovereign. And so the, the International Seabed Authority was established basically to establish the, the exploitation regulations while protecting the marine environment. That was established in 1994. And here we are in 2023 and still no commercial activity has happened in international waters. And that's because we have a central regulator. It's not the Wild West, but if we did not have that central regulator, then I'm sure we'd, we'd have an enormous amount of deep sea mining going on today. And so I, I think it's for the first time we're going to see an asset that's deemed the common heritage of humankind be developed. And I think it's appropriate to have a central regulator who's laying down the guidelines on how companies have to operate, what standards we need to meet. And you know, as the leader in this field, we wanted to be seen as exemplary with regards to our environmental credential. You know, I've heard people say, well, how will we know what you're doing a thousand miles offshore and 4,000 meters below sea level? But then it's going to be the opposite. I want everyone to see what we're doing because I think when people start to appreciate what the true impact is of land-based mining and they look at this as an alternative, we're going to find people wanting to buy products that are made with our metals because they'll be able to have comfort that there was no child labor, that there were no indigenous communities dislodged, that we, we felled no trees. We didn't release any carbon from our carbon sinks. We can measure exactly how much water was used, how much CO2 was generated. When we do that, it's going to put pressure on other people to do that. And I can tell you the picture on the other side won't be so pretty. Can we get to net zero without this technology? I can't see it, no. And of course, net zero is one of the measures. Biodiversity loss at the moment and it's getting the right sort of attention. In the absence of a solution like the one that we have at our fingertips here, then people are going to push into habitats that are so precious and so pristine and they will destroy them along the way. And that will be lost forever. Isn't your challenge that you're really fighting a, a, a bad rap that the whole kind of industry has, seabed mining, mining in general? Look, there is no doubt there is a lot of narrative warfare going on right now. And, you know, and I, I guess the challenge there is how do you have a sensible, calm debate around this and in the same breath discuss what the alternatives are? If not this, then what? And... And I think it's it's easy 
for our opponents to sensationalize deep sea mining by looking at what happens on land and encouraging people to think, we're going to do this in the ocean now. But it's a totally different thing. So you talk about setting a high bar, which you've done for yourself. And part of that high bar is basically saying, look, we're not talking about something that's going to happen forever. We'll only have to do this for a relatively short time, and then we're good. Is that is that realistic? I believe so. I also believe that some of the worst practices in land-based mining can be stopped as a result of our activity. Some of our opponents say, look, you won't stop anything. You'll just add to more mining. But I don't believe that. You know, and I, I do believe consumers can vote with their wallets. You know, they will vote to buy products that are made with lower impact metals. And eventually, when they're available, to buy products that are made with recycled metals. We're, we're some decades away from that. And, and the big challenge right now is how are we going to meet those needs for the transition that is underway without destroying the best parts of our 30% of the planet that is land. That's why last year's trial was important to, to study the, the plume. And think of plume as the dirt that's generated when we drive a car down a dirt road. The question is, how far will the plume travel? You know, And what we found was that the plume only rose around two meters above the seafloor, stuck together like glue, and then 98% of it settled in the same area. There's no real currents down there, and it just settles. You need to do that science to be able to provide the evidence to then be able to model that out at a larger scale, and then you can make more informed decisions. Gerard Barron, this is, uh, I've learned a lot from this conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time to explain this to us. Thank you. The Metals Company Expedition in 2022 also included a second ship with dozens of marine scientists who had audio video, and water monitoring equipment to evaluate the mining's environmental impact. There have been no research papers published, at least not yet. But despite the shortage of research, there's a looming deadline for a decision on whether seabed mining gets the green light. James McFarland is a consultant who provides expertise on all manner of ocean issues. He has helped design human-occupied submersibles, He's written on ocean conservation and policy. He has a keen interest in deep-sea mining and environmental management. From 2009 to 2011, he was head of the Office of Resources and Environmental Monitoring for the Jamaican-based International Seabed Authority. It's the body that regulates seabed mining. And through his company, McFarland Marine Services, he consults on all things underwater. He lives in California. James McFarland, welcome to Hot Politics. Thank you very much. So let's kick off this conversation with a, a bit of an explanation. What is the role of this International Seabed Authority? The International Seabed Authority was established to manage all mineral resources on the ocean floor in what is known as the area. So countries have exclusive economic zones that take their boundaries out to about 200 nautical miles. Anything beyond that is, uh, for the most part, known as the area. And all of the marine mineral resources that would be found in that area would be under the purview of the International Seabed Authority. The area. 
200 nautical miles. That's quite a distance. Well, it's it's actually not that big in the grand scheme of things when you look at the size of all of our oceans. And realistically, the seafloor area that the is defined by the area and the seabed authority is responsible for is approximately 51% of the surface of the planet. And I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, but is the U.S. not a member? The United States was one of the primary authors of what's known as UNCLOS, which is the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea. And they did spend a lot of time developing UNCLOS and, and writing extensively, but it was never ratified here in the United States, although they are there in, a, in an observer capacity for all of the meetings. And I understand that it's taken quite a while to create regulations. Why is that? Well, because it has to pass by consensus. You know, you have a lot of countries with a lot of different competing requirements, all wanting to have their voice heard. And so not everybody views the resources of this planet the same. You have uh, different factions who would have different uh, requirements, and you will see those things uh, manifest themselves throughout the meetings at the Seabed Authority. But there's a deadline looming, July 2023, to get regulations in place. Why is there a deadline? There has been a deadline imparted because Nehru and the metals company have triggered a requirement for the Seabed Authority to have the mining code and the environmental code and the financial instruments together this summer, basically. And what happened was the metals company through Nauru basically wrote a letter that said commercialization is imminent. And when it was written that commercialization was imminent, that triggered a two-year clock. They have two years to get those regulations in place. But that's a very daunting task when you're considering environmental impact assessments, the mining code, financial instruments, you know, royalties, and all those sorts of things. But after all of the framework is written, then that framework has to go to the Legal and Technical Commission, where all the experts caucus and arm wrestle over what they believe is real or imaginary. And then from there, um, once they have reached consensus, then it has to go to the council. And then all those members have to come to consensus. And then it's got to go to the full assembly, where all of the member states have to come to consensus on that. And uh, that's not quite as easy as it might sound. There's a, a lot of countries currently that are saying you got to <laughs> slow down. The precautionary principle, for example, needs to be considered as to whether you've got enough data to make an informed decision. You know, you need to have environmental time series. You need to have done investigations to understand who lives there, what their ecosystems are, and how it all interacts. And a lot of that work hasn't been done. And will the International Seabed Authority make that deadline? I think that they will not make the deadline. And then what is supposed to occur, according to UNCLOS, is that a temporary permit allowing exploitation would be released. And, and that's where the real unknowns start to occur. How do you go mining in the deep ocean in a very difficult environment that has impacts that are unknown? You have no environmental impact code or assessment or the basic information required to make determinations really doesn't exist. And so how do you provide a permit for somebody to go exploit natural resources without a regulatory framework? That's a very difficult problem. So I don't understand why. I mean, if you don't make the deadline, then why go ahead and implement an, an interim 
process with interim permits. Because that was written into UNCLOS, and uh, I believe that that's where we could see some legal issues. When UNCLOS was formed, the International Seabed Authority was one of two agencies or non-governmental organizations that were born of that document. The other agency that was born was the International Tribunal on the Law of the Sea, ITLAS. And ITLAS is based in Hamburg, Germany, and they have what's known as the Seabed Disputes Chamber there. And so my prediction is that some organization, an environmental group of, of some ilk, will probably go to ITLAS and the Seabed Dispute Chamber and ask for an injunction. Could there be a flood of mining companies asking for permits? It's entirely possible. The, the thing about it is that the seabed is a, a very large area and it takes a fairly large war chest of money to be able to go out there and actively exploit in that area. Now, there are three types of minerals that are typically uh, under review. There's polymetallic nodules, which is what the metals company slash Nauru are looking to exploit. The nodules are the mineral of choice because you basically can just vacuum them off the seafloor. The problem arises that that disturbs the substrate and removes the foundation or the floor for the critters to live on. Once you've vacuumed up the nodules, what do the animals live on? So from the work that you've done, do you think that seabed mining can be done without significant environment damage? Mining by its very nature is an intrusive operation. I think that vacuuming nodules off the seafloor certainly is something that a lot of people have spent a lot of time thinking about. And certainly there's a, a lot of valuable resources there. And, and maybe at some point in time in the future, somebody will devise a way that, to recover those assets that is environmentally friendly. But with that said, I, I think that the foundational work that's required to understand the environment that's going to be exploited is really not completed. I mean, we've done a better job of mapping the surface of the moon. We've done a better job of mapping the surface of Mars. We've got more data there than we do in the deep ocean. And so we live here. And the oceans is inner space versus outer space. John F. Kennedy, in an address to Congress back in, I think it was 1961, said, knowledge of our oceans is more than a matter of curiosity. Our very survival may depend upon it. Will it happen? Probably at some point in our future, I would say that it probably will. Are we ready to do it yet? I don't think so. My understanding is that a lot of this vacuuming up of the nodules would take place in something called an abyssal zone, where there isn't a whole lot of activity. The abyssal zone basically starts, call it three, 4,000 meters, and it continues down, and then beyond 6,000 meters becomes the um, Hadal zone. But the abyssal plains that you find in the Clarion-Clipperton zone, the CCZ, are, you know, five to 6,000 meters and there. There's, you know, seamounts and stuff there. But to say that there's not a lot of stuff living down there, I think is a very difficult characterization to make. If you look at the, the CCZ, it's four and a half million square kilometers. And if you look at all of the data points that have been collected within that four and a half million square kilometers, I don't think that you're into having the actual signals. You haven't got enough data to make evidence-based decisions in that area. So I don't think that people can characterize and say, well, there's not a lot living down there. So then would you argue that that we would have to look at keeping more land mining as, as an alternative then? 
the seabed area that would be impacted by a single mine over a 20-year lifespan would be something on the order of 135 square miles. That's a fairly large footprint, and that's one mine. So, you know, I think that having a, a mine on land with a footprint of four kilometers versus something that's a couple hundred square kilometers is significantly different. And when they have exhausted a coal vein, they go back and they plant trees and they make lakes and they replant, and now they've got beautiful parklands. Going back to 5,000 meters below the surface of the ocean and trying to do remedial work after you've extracted all of the resources is not simple. It's costly and it takes a long, long time. The likelihood of remedial work being done, I think, is probably quite low. Now, there are people discussing that. But then you have to look at what that price point is. And then at what point do you actually get to a place where it is no longer cost effective or making a profit? So is the seabed authority meant to deal with environmental concerns being raised about seabed mining? Yes. Effectively? The problem that arises is that the International Seabed Authority is a fairly small organization. The staff is under 50. The annual budget is very small. They are probably not fully positioned to be able to support the actual exploitation operations. It's a big ocean out there, and uh, there's a whole pile of contractors. Mining operations are going to need monitoring as well, but the staff to do that monitoring doesn't exist. Are you going to have separate underwater vehicle systems to be able to go down and inspect what they've done? Are you going to piggyback on the actual mining operation to oversee the actual systems they're running themselves? I mean, none of that framework is in place. There, there's a lot of unknowns in that conversation. So there are 168 member states, and I imagine that some or many of them will be unhappy with being forced to you know, deal with an interim permit. What do you think these folks will end up doing? Well, that's why I mentioned it, Loss. I, I believe that a, a number of people will probably head to Hamburg. And head to the Star Chamber. Yep, head to the, the Seabed <laughs> Disputes Chamber and, and knock on the door. When I was at the Seabed Authority over a decade ago now, Nehru asked for some advisory opinions from the Seabed Dispute Chamber on three topics about who was going to be liable for environmental impacts within the area. And that one-page, three-question document came back sometime later from the uh, Seabed Disputes Chamber as an 84-page document. And their advisory opinion basically said that you must follow the Rio Accord and the precautionary principle, and you must complete the marine scientific research and so forth. It was a fairly comprehensive document. I can't quote it verbatim any longer, but I can say with some authority that anybody who has been paying attention to this broad conversation and the impacts certainly would be looking to that advisory opinion to see how the court is is going to lean. And so I would postulate that if a, an IGO or an NGO, some environmental organization decided to try and get an injunction to stop commercialization in the area, I think that they would probably be in the right place at the seabed dispute chamber to try and get an injunction. You sound cautious here. You sound concerned. Is this worth the effort? 
It is a very difficult question. There's no doubt about it. We are in a transitionary period here, trying to become more environmentally friendly to our planet. We have carbon issues, we have ocean acidification, we have temperature rise, we have methane hydrates that are off-gassing and putting more warming elements into our atmosphere disturbing vast swaths of the seabed without fully understanding the impacts that we could have on that are problematic. I am cautious. I, I think that we don't have enough information to be able to go out and go forth. I, I think that we need to slow down. I think we need to put together multidisciplinary science efforts where you've got biologists, geologists, chemists, oceanographers working in concert to get a full view of what is occurring in that environment. I think that, you know, when you look at what you have to do to permit a terrestrial mine, why should going into the deep ocean be any different? Why should the environmental requirements be any less stringent? I thank you for sharing that opinion with us on Hot Politics, James McFarland. Thank you very much. In my pleasure, David. Thank you for having me. That's it for Hot Politics this week. I hope you learned something. I certainly did. Just a reminder to rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment. We love hearing from you. Hot Politics is produced by Canada's National Observer. Our managing producer for podcasts is Sandra Bartlett. Associate producer, Zara Kozema. The editor-in-chief is Karen Puyesi. Our publisher is Linda Solomon-Wood. See you in two weeks. <laughs>